Welcome to Elevate. I'm so happy you're here with me today, and I cannot wait to share this episode with you. As an evidence-based coach, mentor, and entrepreneur, I'm obsessed with learning and personal development as it's transformed my entire life, as well as those I get to work with. And to be quite frank, it's literally the entire reason this podcast exists, to feel your growth, gain perspective, and acquire knowledge. So buckle up, friends. You're in for a treat. And as always, thank you for supporting me and the show so we can continue to elevate our own lives as well as those you share this with. Now, let's get into it. What is going on, guys? And welcome back to another episode of Elevate. Today, we have Dr. Joshua Smith back on, and I cannot wait to share the context of this conversation with you. We're going to dive into relationships. He has a background with marriage and therapy counseling, so I want to talk about how couples show up in that. If there is someone in that dynamic that maybe has a personality issue, such as narcissism or bipolar, um, we do want to understand how that might show up and and play out, um, as well as people that struggle with setting boundaries or having difficult conversations. So I'm very excited to have Josh and dive into all of these things. So for people that might be new, Josh, can you just enter, enter, um, I'm sorry, can you introduce yourself um, so that people know who you are and what you do? Well, I'm very glad to be back. Thanks for having me on a second time. Um, Like you said, I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I do a bunch of different things, anywhere from you know, individual couples and family therapy. I did a lot of trauma work um, way back. I started doing work mostly in inpatient settings. And now I split my time. Um, I'm a pain psychologist three days a week. I work in a pain clinic with people who have chronic conditions, you know, anywhere from kind of surgical or injury to, you know, degenerative disc disease, things like that. Um, So three days a week, I'm in a pain clinic. And then two days a week, I do more of the, in, you know, you know, the, the one-on-one or couples therapy. And so it's a nice mix. I get a, a gamut of what I do. Um, so we already have Kate coming up with a question because I think it's important when, whenever I dive into conversations, especially around like psychology or ideas, I like to define what it is that we're talking about so that we're all on the same page as to what that might entail, right? Giving a loose example, it's like when people talk about success, the way that you might perceive something that is successful mm-hmm. might be different from me. And so it's important to have that kind of underlying definition. And so one word that I find kind of jumps around a lot is trauma. And so when you're working with someone in a situation or one-to-one or even with couples, when you're talking about trauma, when we are loosely using the term, how do you define that in practice? Oh, how to define trauma? Well, so in terms of how I meant it, you know, in, in, in that general introduction is, is I spent several years working on a trauma response team. So we were responding specifically to kind of one-off events, something that had happened that people had either witnessed, uh, like an accident or, you know, something, something terrible, like a bombing or things like that. I was on a team that would get called in to go into whatever that setting is and meet with the people who had been impacted or, witnessed it to try and help process the immediate aftermath of having either been through or witnessed or been part of something that was, that was traumatic. Uh, Like you're pointing out, the word trauma uh, has like a much bigger scope than that. And so, you know, in terms of a direct trauma response team, that isn't the kind of work I do now, but I would say I deal with trauma every single day. think most people probably are encountering or are impacted by trauma in some way, whether it's the people they work with, the people in their lives. We don't often know the entirety of what people have been through. And so I think that's where the definition of trauma gets a lot looser. And we get more into this idea of we're talking about the things that have happened to any individual that really stuck or hit home or altered their perception in some way, shape or form. And then changed some part of how they view the world. Mm. And so trauma can run the gamut from really specific examples of abuse, you know, or neglect or, you know, injury or, you know, eating disorders or, you know, really it goes all across what, what could be constituted as trauma. I would say the big differentiation for me is, is, is did the experience kind of impact on a significant level? And is it something that stuck with the person? And then I would count it as trauma. That's really 
interesting. And so I have to ask this question because it just makes me think. So could some, because a lot of people talk about like your childhood trauma, right? That's something, and I, I'm curious on your stance with that, because a lot of people now I hear when they talk about whether it's mindset stuff or psychology, they always go back to, well, a lot of this stem from like the five-year-old version of you, right? And like go back and talk to that child version. So I am curious on your hot take around that. But my second question really is, could someone essentially be in an environment that would impact their behavior from a very young age and could be perceived from a different uh, culture or individual as traumatic. For example, you mentioned like neglect. So like me growing up, my mom was a single mom with three young kids. And so it's not that she was absent by any means, but surely with that demand to be able to provide for that, those small kids, right. She wasn't as accessible as maybe parents who were in a nuclear home. And so that level of neglect can obviously shift behavior um, to where the child, like for myself became very independent from a very young age. And so like, I don't know, like in my adult life that I would see that as a trauma, but I do understand how that has impacted my behavior and level of independence that I now very firmly kind of embody. And so I'm curious on those two ideas and your stance on them. Oh, geez, we're going to need a whole series. Um, <laughs> you know, but no, but what you're pointing out is we're all impacted by the system and the family that we grow up in. It's our first and only frame of reference. It's how we learn how to interact. It's how we learn our understanding of what a good relationship is. It's how we learn like what's normal, what's not normal. That doesn't necessarily make it traumatic. Being raised by a single parent and having to be a little bit more independent or a lot more independent early on can be difficult. It can be challenging, but it doesn't by definition then have to mean that it's traumatic. It could be for one person versus another, right? If one child or individual is able to recognize and understand the meaning of it and then adjust what they're doing in life to say, okay, well, then I need to help, right? I need to get in. I need to be able to do, and they develop resiliency or independence or, well, that's going to shape a little bit of how they view the world. But that doesn't necessarily, none of these are overtly right or wrong or good or bad. They're just our experiences. And I think when I think of neglect or abuse, it's a little bit more overt. And it typically means that the areas where your parent or somebody wasn't there is an area where you couldn't fully take on that role or take care of yourself. And then as a result, you know, something happened or not like an overt instance, but it was more of a feeling of not feeling safe, not feeling protected, feeling unsure. You know, if, if you and your siblings are home alone and you know that your mom has to work, but you also know that the three of you are able to feed yourselves and get things ready and get, you're going to just develop a different view of what's your responsibility. It's very different if you're an only child and you're home alone and you don't understand that your parents out, you don't know when they're going to be home, you don't know how to feed yourself, and you're basically just sitting at home scared. Those two scenarios are going to result in a very different view of the world. It also depends on whether or not it resulted in anything, anything difficult or harmful, or because it could be that a kid could be home alone for an hour. And one kid could be like, okay, I don't know how to feed myself, but I turned the TV on, I watched TV for an hour, and then my parent came home. And I was okay. It's kind of the difference between when people talk about secure attachment versus insecure attachment. And the question is, are you, what was the actual experience? And the experience can be very different for different people, but we're all informed by what we grow up in and, and what we see. Um, you know, I read something uh, like a while ago and I'm not going to do it justice, um, you know, uh, but I saw something online where somebody had written something to the effect of uh, red flags in like in your adulthood that remind you of childhood don't register as red flags. And the way I see that is, you know, if you grew up in a household with a parent that was really intrusive or had poor boundaries and you come home from a date and your mom says, great, sit down and tell me everything. And it makes you feel uncomfortable. And you're like, uh, I don't really want to. But if your mom responds to you and is like, why are you being weird about this? 
I just want to know, did you hold hands? Did you kiss? Did you make out? Did you this? And you're like, uh, you just want to know all these details that make me terribly uncomfortable. If that parent responds as if you're the one who's crazy and that this is totally normal and that you should share all these details, you internalize, oh, like, okay, something's wrong with me that I feel awkward about talking about this. And what's normal is talking about personal things, even when I don't want to. That doesn't get corrected because you're not going to go into school the next day, sit down at lunch and say to all your friends, hey, did you all tell your parents about every detail about the dates that you went on? So you don't know that it's not normal. You just know it makes you feel weird. And what you learn is your own boundaries. You're like, oh, when I have a feeling of that makes me uncomfortable, that's a problem with me. Not like, not that other person, not that. So as an adult, if you're getting interviewed or you're on a date and somebody asks you questions that make you really uncomfortable, because of how you grew up, you're more likely to go, that's a problem with me. Like, and you might have an employer ask you a personal question and you're going to answer it, even though it makes you uncomfortable because you think like, I'm real weird about that. And so that's how I think what you grow up in can shape how you interact with people. And it's usually down the line when people talk about their childhood and adulthood and they're like, this is all the stuff I'm working out. I feel like it's almost like when the glass shatters and all of a sudden you see your childhood for what it was. Not, the, not that that's a problem, just that you truly see some of the things you thought were awesome that weren't so awesome, some of the things, then you have to work out all of that. And what does that mean? And how do I relearn it as an adult? So you hit on the first question that I had was if people could possibly have trauma that they're unaware that they carry, for example, like you mentioned like feelings of not feeling safe. Right. And for me, that was a huge thing like that carried into my twenties um, when I was looking into pursuing relationships and I struggled to do that because on some level, it was just like, I never felt safe. And it was hard for me as well to express like, I need your help or I need this from you. And to ask that of other people, I always carried this, like, it's wrong of me to ask people to help me or serve me in a certain way. Um, so I think that's a very interesting idea is it just piques my curiosity as to how many people may have unresolved childhood trauma, not because it was something that was overarchingly or like blatantly traumatic, like something overwhelming that would cause in an, an natural fashion for us to believe that someone actually went through something traumatic, but due to maybe environmental conditioning that they start to behave in a certain way that they deem as normal based on their frame of reference. And as you get into adult life and you expand your relationships and your, in your circle of that, and, and those dynamics, you can start to see that people behave differently than you do. And so then there's this gap of curiosity as to like, well, why is it so easy for this person to ask that person for help? And it doesn't look like they get reprimanded for asking for help. So why is that different for me? And, and then you might start to judge yourself as though people don't want to help you and something is inherently wrong with you. And that's why people don't want to help you. Um, so I think that just as an example sake, that's what comes to top of mind. But the other thing that you mentioned is attachment. And I think, again, this is something that's like for me, cause I don't understand it enough to have a true opinion on it. I know that a lot of people will run down attachment styles and like, what do you need? What is your attachment style? And, and those types of things. And one thing that you brought up is kind of this red flag that doesn't feel like a red flag. And so for me, and, and I always think about this in dynamics of relationships, and this is why I mentioned kind of on the frame, the attachment style. And so if you find, for example, let's say that you grew up in a household where your parents were like very hot and cold, right? And they'd argue, mm -hmm. but then they'd be great. And then they'd argue and then they'd be great. And you're like, you normalize that in your mind. And so even if that is somewhat unhealthy. And you might even be consciously aware that that dynamic is unhealthy. There's still a part of you that will seek out that type of dynamic in a relationship because it feels normal and normal feels safe, even if that safety is actually not safe at all. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I mean, what you're talking about is that you, you grow up in a family system and that's how you learn how to relate. So that seems like it's normal, right? I mean, from a cultural standpoint, you see some families that communicate like loudly, right? Families that like yell and, you know, that's normal for them. So if somebody grew up in a totally different family where it was all very passive and everybody was very quiet and when their parents were fighting, all you noticed was they didn't talk to each other. Mm -hmm. But if those two people start dating 
what's going to end up happening is when they get when they run into conflict, one of them is going to be like, stay here. We're going to yell about it. We're going to scream about it. That's how we work stuff out. The other person is going to be like, whoa, yelling is not something I'm comfortable with because they never grew up with it. So they're not going to see that as productive and they're going to withdraw and say, hey, if you're going to yell, I'm out. And the two of them have to almost figure out how do we take our two family systems, what we grew up with, and, and figure out a path to, the, to a center point. And in terms of what you grow up with, when you said before, kind of unresolved childhood trauma, and I think that's become a little bit of a buzzword. And in yeah. essence, what you're talking about is unresolved childhood realities, right? Things that you grew up with, but you wouldn't know. You would have no way of knowing that that's not how everybody does it. So like right? a belief Because system, that's your family system. Like a belief system versus a reality, right? So one of my favorite quotes is like, this is how humans are. We challenge all of our beliefs, except for those we truly believe in, those we never think to question. And so like the deepest part is the last part, which is you have a lot of beliefs that are inherent to you and you tolerate or accept within your existing current reality, but they're not actually real, right? And so this can come down to the types of relationships that you tolerate or don't tolerate based on your narrative of what a relationship mm -hmm. looks like based on your belief system that you picked up on that may not actually be the, the realest form of a healthy relationship. Yeah, because- in essence, they are real. The part that gets messed up is that it's not factual, right? So your experience, how you grew up, what you think is, it's not that it's not real. It's that that was your reality. And what you don't know is that's not everyone's reality, right? You don't realize that's not how everybody does it until you kind of leave that family system and then you run into it. You know, uh, a friend of mine, uh, she grew up in a family system where you don't really confront, right? Like I grew up in a family system where if people had an opinion, they were going to tell you whether you asked or not. She grew up in a household where everything was very passive. So if I ever came home at the end of the day and I looked pissed, one of my parents was going to say, what's wrong? You look pissed, right? Or what's wrong? And if I was like, nothing, why? They would have been like, because uh, you look angry. And when I asked you, you snapped at me. So you don't have to tell me what it is, but we're not going to pretend that you're not angry. My friend grew up in a household where if she came home and she looked mad, her mom never would have said that. Her mom would have just said, how was your day? And if she said, fine, why? She would have said, no reason, just checking. So my friend grew up believing she controlled her emotions magnificently and that nobody could read her emotions. Okay. So then in college, people would be like, Hey, what's wrong? And she'd be like, why do you keep asking me that? Cause in her mind, she's walking around picture perfect. And nobody can tell that she's angry because she didn't learn. Nobody told her that we can see your facial expression. And so what she learned in her family system is one, don't ask. It's rude. It's actually mean or inconsiderate. So if somebody says to her right now, if her husband says, hey, what's wrong? You look mad. It pisses her off because she's like, hey, if I look mad and you could tell that I'm mad, the right thing to do here is to not talk about it. It's rude for you to point that out and bring it up. Just leave me alone. And in his family system, he's like, not bringing it up would be rude. Like I'm concerned and I want to know what's wrong and I want to see if I can help. And so they get into arguments all the time because of that so, very thing. So now this speaks my curiosity on a different lens of this, which is from your perspective, when someone enters your office and you start to engage with them, can you almost speculate hypothetically the environment in which they grew up in based on their ability to interact with you with different frames or probing questions and get an, get an idea of maybe their temperament based on their willingness or inability to communicate around certain ideas or, or questions? That's a good question. I, I would love to say that I have gotten to a point where like I meet with somebody and immediately I can read some sort of secret hidden 
it's easier for some people than others. You know, some people, you know, wear everything on their sleeve. And so it's easier to pick up. Some people really hold things, you know, tighter. The longer I've been doing this, I would say the more I'm aware of and the more of these little cues or signals I pick up on. Um, in reality, I would say it's probably not until a third meeting. Mm. You know, it, it's almost like the the like a joke in kind of the therapy universe of like third session is when you're going to find out why somebody really came in. Mm. You know, that's when it's really going to come out. If a couple comes in to see me, the big three things that people argue about when they first come in is usually money, intimacy, or sexuality, uh, and often family or social or external stressors or variables. And, you know, well, I mean, there's a million other things. Sometimes people could just come in because they're trying to figure out co-parenting, which is not easy. You know, sometimes it could be totally different than that. But in general, those three things always come up at some point. And very often somebody will come in and say, okay, this is why we're here. It's all communication. And I'm like, okay. And then it's not until we get three sessions in that I'm like, oh, you're talking about communication around having one family that's over enmeshed and really pushy. And the system you grew up in is you have to cater to your parents. You have to cater to your siblings. And you have a partner who's like, I don't get it. You keep sacrificing our life to make their life better. But it can take several sessions before we get to that. But I think people definitely, people have a lot of tells. People definitely show up with certain things that I've probably gotten better at picking up on that at least lead me in the right direction to know like what, like what I should be asking or what I should, but I can't pretend that that's like a, I, it's not like I can walk around the streets and kind of point at somebody and be like, you know, accommodator empath, narcissist, like, I mean, that would be an amazing skill. Um, it would make my job easier, but <laughs> you know, so yeah, I, oh, this is kind of me boiling things. Cause I, I always try to find like an underlying principle that I can carry across into different scenarios to try to understand the world a bit better. So based on what you've shared, my first thought is if I were to boil this down into a principle, would you say that in your experience, most people find arguments or disagreements because of their frame of reference injected into the way that they perceive the world? And because of those differences in perception, they don't find fundamental agreement because they see, truly see and perceive things quite differently. Yeah. I mean, I, I would add in it's it's kind of the perception, like the receptive piece. How do I read the situation? How do I understand it? Which can be different for any individual. And then it's also the, do we agree on how to approach it? And then it's a communication piece. So all three of those are where I think conflict kind of comes into play because it could be two individuals see a scenario very similarly, but where they disagree is in the, what do we do about it? Right. If one person says, Hey, what I would do about this is just kind of say, you know what? Let's decrease our time with them. That's how I would. And the other one says, Hey, this is a problem and we need to approach them about it. Okay. Well, now all of a sudden we perceive it totally same, but we have a very different approach. And then when you add in the, how do we communicate about it? That's where I think conflict comes in. Because the way that I look at it, like from a more like, like concrete, standpoint is it's almost like every single family has its own language and that's the family you grow up in. So that's the language you speak and other people that you meet may speak a different dialect of the same language. So for the most part, you understand each other, you speak the same language, but there are these nuances, these subtle differences, but you don't know. So you may be having a conversation with somebody and believe that you are hundred percent on board, but a word I use might mean something different to you. And so the challenge is, it's why I think when people date, there is some relief in dating somebody who has some similarity in background, right? If you've had a whole lifetime as an athlete, it's helpful if you date somebody who's at least been some level of an athlete, because you now are more likely to speak a, a kind of larger overlapping dialect. You understand each other, so it makes it a little easier. The challenge with that is there's always going to be these subtle nuances and differences. And if you don't know what they are, 
Well, so if you date somebody who speaks a whole different language, it's confusing. You're like, I don't understand you. You say something, I literally don't know what you mean. If you date somebody where it's a similar overlap, it's harder to find those areas where it's like, oh, you said this, but you actually meant that in my language. So I didn't understand. You know, this would be like, you know, my, my friend that I was telling you about. In my family, if an event was happening and it was important to be there, they would say, hey, I know this is last minute. You have to be there. In her family, they would never say that. They would say, we understand it's last minute and that it could be really tough to get there. But if you could make it, it would mean a lot. Okay. In my family system, that would mean, hey, we understand if you can't make it, it was last minute. And if you can't be there, you can't be there. In her family, that is the epitome of you have to be there. So if I was interacting with her family and they said that to me, I'd be like, okay, well, let me see what I can do, but I'm not going to totally rearrange my schedule to be there. And then they would all been pissed at me because they would have been like, we told you how important it was to be there. And I'd be like, no, you actually told me it was totally okay if I wasn't, but because we're not speaking the same language. Well, this comes so, down to one of my biggest pet peeves. And, and maybe this is again, like from my frame of reference and like the way that I operate myself. And again, I think a lot of times, one of the biggest things, pieces of advice that a friend gave me was you'll be less disappointed if you stop expecting yourself from other people, because there are certain things that you may do and you would knowing that you would do them, but you don't get that reciprocity of your own expectation of self in return. That's where you see disappointment and that fallout. Right. Um, but I want to circle back to something that you said, um, which was, well, first I was going to say on that point with what was said versus what is meant. Right. And one of my biggest things that I tell people is mean what you say and say what you mean. If you do that, I will understand where we're at. I, I can read the, read the room appropriately. Mm -hmm. But I think the biggest thing that I struggle with, especially in my own personal life with dating and relationships is people will say one thing and mean something different. And I don't always understand what they're, what they mean by what they said. And then their behavior will embody what they meant, which is why there's a disconnect between how they behave and what they also said. Right. And so that's where it gets like almost an overwhelming puzzle that you then have to try to put together. Whereas if people would just say what they mean and mean what they say, it would be very clear. And I don't necessarily understand the gap with that. Well, often it's because they believe they said exactly what they mean and they meant what they said. And they don't know that they're not speaking directly because in their family and the family of origin, like that would have made sense. So what they said, even though it wasn't accurate, right? Like, even though if they said that same thing to 10 people, eight might've interpreted it the way you did. They grew up in a family system where a hundred percent would have understood them, right? A hundred percent would have understood, Hey, don't make me say you have to cancel your weekend plans to be here. Right? So in their mind, when they said, Hey, if you could make it, that'd be great. But I totally get it. If you can't, that person, if they haven't done some of the work or if they haven't been confronted or they haven't taken the time to figure it out when you don't show up is going to be pissed because in their mind they said it's really important for you to be there and but on the other side that, yeah but then on the other side it feels like you're always fucking it up because you are listening and they are saying if you can't make it that's fine but then when you don't make it it's actually not fine mm -hmm. so then there's like this it's never i don't know for me it's always like i, I did what you said and i listened to how you guided that and this in your presentation was an adequate option, but in hindsight, it's never, it's not the right one. Right. And so it almost feels like this gamble where you are trying to pick the right, <laughs> the right card to play, but inevitably you lose every time. And it's like, that's where it feels like an impossible, impossible game. Well, and I guess that's where it becomes a, a part of the relationship building relationship is recognizing, Hey, we have two different ways that we talk about things. We don't always use, we use the same words, but not the same language. And we need to work on breaking that down, identifying it and fixing it. You know, I know it's a ridiculous example. Um, but you know, when my wife and I started dating, uh, I'm not a big dessert person. I would always, I, I salty, crunchy, I would have more chips. I would have popcorn or I would just have more like of dinner. My wife loves dessert. 
okay, so when we start, when you start dating somebody, you go out to dinner all the time. We would go out to eat. And at the end of the meal, it was, hey, do you want to look at a dessert? And I would ask my now wife and I'd be like, oh, do you want to look at dessert? And she'd be like, I'm okay. You know, do you want to look? And I'd be like, nah, I'm okay. Okay. Now in my mind, we had just had a very clear interaction. The first time I had dinner with my in-laws, you know, end of the meal comes and same, same song and dance. Anybody, anybody interested in dessert? I was like, I'm good. Everybody at the table says we're good. And I'm like, okay. Waiter comes over and my father-in-law basically said, we'll take a look at the menu, the dessert menu. And I was like, oh, but I thought we all just said we, we didn't need dessert. And then we proceed to play, a, ooh, let's look at the desserts. And if you wanted one, which one were you going to get? And I was like, oh, well, that game I love. It's just fun. So we all talk about the desserts and then waiter comes back over and everybody says nothing for me, nothing for me. And my father-in-law orders three desserts. And I was like, whoa, whoa, what, what, what's, what's happening? Like nobody wants dessert. Why would we get three? And my wife gave me this kind of like, almost like head nod, this kind of like, don't, don't question this. And I was like, okay, desserts come and everybody shares. Everybody has a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little, and we're in the car. And I kind of said to my wife, I was like, um, what just happened? And she was like, you know, my mom doesn't always like to order dessert. And she was like, I don't know why. Like, so my dad just kind of always is the one that says like, no, let's indulge and get dessert. And my interpretation is that that way he was the one that ordered dessert. So this addresses people's internal guilt of did I order? Did I not? And all of a sudden it dawns on me and I'm like, we have gone out to dinner a lot and we don't get dessert all that often. So I turned to her and I said, have you been hoping that I would order desserts that I would be the one at dinner that like ordered? And she was like, no, I mean, it would be nice every once in a while. And I was like, oh my God, I, we've gone out God knows how many times. And every time she's hoping I'm going to order a dessert for us. And I had no idea. So just a small, subtle difference in kind of our family system. I had to say to her directly, I don't know what to do because I, I kind of don't want that responsibility because if I don't want dessert and you say you don't want dessert and you actually don't want dessert, I don't want to order a dessert that neither one of us want. Yeah. And if you do want dessert, well, then I'm always happy to get it. And, I mean, and she had to say, I can see that. I can see that you don't want the stress of like, when you say no to dessert, do you mean no, you don't want dessert? Or do you mean yes, you don't? And so she had to hear that and say, I'm going to have to break out of this family system and just tell you when I want dessert, which makes her uncomfortable. Yeah. But we identified it. And then it was the, can we communicate it and work past it? So this actually brings us to kind of what I wanted, one of the things I want to talk about, which is having maybe uncomfortable conversations, or like I said, for me, like asking for help. So like, if I wanted dessert, like I probably in the same fashion as your, as your wife would have been like, no, I'm fine. He doesn't want it. So I don't want to be the one that asks for it. Like, it's just kind of like, I can, you know, get something sweet on my own time. Um, yep. So, you know, a simple, simple example, but nonetheless, there's lots of things that people struggle to communicate effectively for fear of maybe judgment from their partner as to what their their shift in perception of this person is before them that they really like. And I think a lot of the times it's like, for me, for a period of time, I always struggled with feeling inadequate, like something's wrong with me, I'm broken, I'm not good enough, whatever that is, right? So some of those needs and desires, like I was like, well, if I do this, I'll be too needy and they won't like me anymore. Or if I say, I don't, I don't feel comfortable with that language, or I don't feel, I don't like the way that you treated me or how you spoke to me, right. They might just walk away because I'm replaceable. And so that shut down my ability to, and I still struggle with kind of verbalizing how I feel. And so from that perspective, like when you're working with couples, maybe, and you probably have one person who kind of leads the pack, right. You have always that one person in the couple. That's like, I'm the forerunner. This is how this is going to go. These are the problems. Help us out, Josh this, my wife's a, whatever. Right. So how do you appreciate and understand where kind of the head honcho is coming from, but how do you also give the other person in the partnership a voice and without understanding what the dynamic is behind a closed door with them as well? Cause I'm sure that's something that you consider when you're working with couples and you're maybe not sure how tumultuous the, the grounds are in which they walk together. So you I'm sure you take that into consideration. So I guess, how would you, how would you approach and advocate for the person who's maybe more abrasive to be vocal or express their needs? And how do you kind of 
shift the perspective of the head of that dynamic to be maybe more considerate towards the other partner without making them feel, especially if you're dealing with someone who has a personality disorder, right? How, how do you have that conversation and bring that level of awareness to them without them feeling triggered as with a less than optimal word choice there? Yeah, no, no, I know what you mean. I, and I mean, it will, it's a bunch of different topics. And so in any given direction, right? I mean, part of it is trying to figure out some of trying to figure out how to find and and enter into a relationship that feels supportive and like a certain amount of it is having to deal with your own stuff, right? I mean, and and trying to address those those areas of discomfort or making sure that you can kind of, I don't know, be vulnerable, right? Because the issue with when you feel less than, when you feel inadequate, when you worry that, you know, I think a lot of people walk around with, we all have our areas of vulnerability over the course of, you know, life. We, we learn what those are and we do our very, very best to lead with our strengths to kind of mask or hide or protect our vulnerable spots, which can work, right? People who are really funny use humor to kind of mask the areas that they might feel not as confident. Sometimes lowering those barriers, like it makes it feel like those vulnerable spots are exposed. And that comes back to where we started, right? Which is if you've lived a life where nobody's ever outright gone out of their way to kind of hit you in a vulnerable spot or take advantage of a vulnerable spot, or then there isn't nearly as much fear in being vulnerable if nobody's ever kind of capitalized on that or noticed it and if you have felt at times that your vulnerabilities were a problem or your vul- vulnerabilities were something that like people would exploit, there's a real fear in taking down some of those barriers because even just in the act of saying, hey, you know, sometimes I'd like dessert, is this like, okay, well, when you're worried that that's a spot or an area of vulnerability, the brain goes in so many different directions of, well, if they don't want it, what are they going to think about me? What are they going to think about the fact that I want it? Do they think me wanting dessert is a negative? And if that's what, like, and unfortunately, lowering those barriers means feeling really vulnerable. And if the times in your life you've allowed yourself to feel vulnerable, it's gone poorly. Then the second you start to feel vulnerable, it's scary. And it causes you to just lock up and be like, never mind. Like, you know, like I, I don't need to, I don't need to go in that direction. And I think if therapy or anything like that or any relationship for it to be most effective, you're talking about, you know, some of the first questions I ask people are kind of what are each of their goals and what's the overall goal? Because the misnomer is that people go into couples therapy because they want to fix it. Sometimes people come into couples therapy because they can't figure out how to end it. Mm. So some of what I'm first trying to figure out when people come in is, are one of these two individuals here because they know it's over and they just don't know how to say it, or they're afraid to say it because they're not sure how it's going to go, or they're scared because they feel like they're going to leave that person in, you know, like without help and support. And so a lot of it is those vulnerable spots, those vulnerable areas it's easier to heal those if you're with somebody that doesn't make you feel threatened and attacked. So if the very first time you say like, hey, occasionally I want dessert, the person goes, oh, well, I'm sorry. I, I like, I, it didn't even occur to me. I'm totally oblivious in that area. I love dessert. I just never think to order it. Well, you're not going to walk away from that going, oh, I, I can't share things with them. You're going to go, oh, I rated that like scale of one to 10 as like a level six stress. And they responded like it was a one. And all of a sudden you're going to be like, I was pretty stressed out about bringing that up for nothing. If you bring it up and somebody hits you with exactly what you're worried about, you know, then all of a sudden you're going to be like, right, don't bring those things up. Let them drive this train. But then it's never going to be as fulfilling a relationship as what you're looking for. What's hard though, is that takes risk to put yourself in that spot. And in couples therapy, you know, when people come in, believe it or not, there isn't always one in charge person. 
Mm. You know, very often, you know, <laughs> there might be one person who's more vocal. There might be one person who was pushing more for that or not. But very often, you know, it's just what domain is each one of them in charge of? Now, if you get into if you get into doing any sort of couples counseling where you have a natural accommodator and anybody who is more in the narcissistic or kind of borderline, kind of more of that selfish or self-centered category, different story, right? Because going all the way back to the childhood stuff that we started talking about, if you grow up in a family where you need to step up and you need to, to kind of own part of it, what you learn is some of your greatest value is in being able to take care of something on your own. So it doesn't have to go to the group or it doesn't have to go, or even more than that, what can I take off other people's plate so they don't have to be burdened by it? Yep. So if you grow up in a family like that, you're more likely to be constantly aware of all of the people around you, what their needs are, what their struggle is, and be asking yourself, can I take on any of that? Can I help? That's how you have an empath or an accommodator or somebody whose desire is kind of, if you grow up being told, hey, my greatest value is bringing the most amount of good to the group, not myself, the collective, right? So if it means, right, like if we're trying to figure out where to go to dinner and three out of four people are like, this one location is an eight out of 10 and it's a one out of 10 for me, who cares? Because if it's the only one where those three all are an eight and those three will be the most happy, my biggest value is not entering in my opinion, which would change it. And then what if for me to get a six or a seven, everybody else has to get a six or a seven. For somebody who's more of a natural you know, empath, it, there was no way they would want anybody else's experience downgraded. So theirs could be elevated. Mm. Somebody who grows up and is given much more of a, you get what you want, you know, who's kind of encouraged to be a little bit more selfish. They have no problem being like, I want pizza. Like, okay, well, great. So for a natural accommodator, that's why very often a narcissist or a borderline and, and, and a real accommodator or an empath are often drawn to one another. For somebody who's a little bit more indecisive or doesn't want to kind of put themselves out there, the bigger stressor is when there's a question that's unanswered. You know, hey, we have a decision and I just want that decision made. So if they meet somebody who loves to make decisions, right? And like right out of the gate is like, hey, where should we go to dinner? Like, do you want to get pizza or burgers? And they're like, pizza. For a natural accommodator, that's like, great. That decision's made. That's awesome. And that person who's a little bit more narcissistic is going to be like, great, this person just is willing to do all the things I want. And they're super happy about it. So in the very beginning, it's really symbiotic. It's really like, it works well for both of them. It doesn't stay positive. Um, you know, and mainly that's because for a narcissist in the very beginning of a relationship, they're all about getting their needs met. And in the very beginning of a relationship, uh, spending time with you is their need. So they will dote on you. They want to spend all their time with you. They call, they message, they want to hang out with you constantly, which feels unbelievable. Once, once they get you, I know it sounds really terrible, but like once the relationship is established, you're no longer their need. You are now a conduit to helping them get their needs met. So there can be a dramatic shift in the relationship all of a sudden like where all of a sudden they get a little bit more aggressive and a little bit more frustrated. In the beginning part of the relationship, if you had to drive two hours to pick something up, they're like, oh, I'll come with you because they just want to be with you. Cut to six months later, if you're like, hey, like I'm going to be gone all of Saturday. If they wanted to be with you, they're pissed. And they're going to be like, you know, well, I can't go. And you're like, well, no, nobody asked you to go. Like I was just going to drive. And they'll be all angry because they're like, well, that's not what I want. And so it's just this big shift. It makes therapy really hard because what happens very often in that scenario. So if, if a couple comes in and I see one person who's really driving that train, 
what I know is all of a sudden I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm getting the full story from the more silent partner, because they might be worried if they tell me the straight up truth that when they leave that room, they're going to get screamed at or berated or yelled at, which means they're not sure what to do. And a functional narcissist or borderline, like high functioning can, <laughs> they can put on a show. Yeah. They can be charismatic and they can, they can say, like, they'll come in and say things like, I understand sometimes I'm hot headed and I shouldn't be. It's just frustrating. Cause like, I feel like I ask for this change and I know I shouldn't get upset and I should be patient, but like, I keep asking and keep asking and there's no change. Okay. That sounds one way in a one hour meeting, but if really what they mean is I keep screaming at my partner to stop fucking up and to stop making mistakes and to stop doing everything wrong and just sounds very different. But so it's a challenge from a therapy standpoint of trying to figure out how do I make sure people are given even time? How do I make sure, you know, that I'm information gathering, <laughs> like in trying to figure out. And then if I see that kind of real inequity, only after I've seen the couple together, I will then often see each one individually. Um, but there's, that's a whole nother bag of tricks of how you explain that to people. So they understand what's confidential and what's not. I will never start that way, right? If I go to start working with somebody and one person says, I will only do this if we can meet first. I'm like, no, <laughs> like either we meet as a couple or we, you know, but sorry, you were going to. No, but um, then my question is, so like, again, just like thinking from my own frame of reference and past experiences. So let's say you meet with them and hypothetically, you're working with someone who is either narcissistic or borderline in temperament. And they're like, okay, this is how you're going to act when we go in there. And this is what you're going to say about this. And I'm going to frame this. And like, of course, if you're the more accommodating one, you're just going to say, okay, because I don't want to get tased. Like the taser analogy still to this day is like the best one I've ever heard. So I resonate with that a lot and I use it a lot. But so if you want to avoid getting tased, obviously you're going to behave in the way that you've been now kind of pressured to, to behave in. And so I would my only fear around the separation would be after you've met with them on an individual basis, how, if indeed this, the kind of leader narcissistic partner is like, okay, well, they want to meet with us one-on-one. -on -one. And so when you go in there and you meet with him, you're only going to tell him about this, this, and this. Okay. And it's like, how do you then create a space to break the fear of, well, I can't tell you this, Josh, because if I do, like, this is a subconscious or, or, conscious thought that they might be having, like they're holding themselves back from expressing the reality in which they exist because they don't want consequences of exp expressing that reality to you in a cult. It should be a safe environment, but knowing that when they walk out, they're going to be blazed with, what did you say? What did you talk about? What did you say about me? Like all of that. And so mm -hmm. there's that, there's that it's fine while I'm in here, but what happens when I walk out? We talk about all that. I mean, I think first off, uh, splitting the couple is not something I do routinely. And it's not like where I would ever start. Um, that's really more if I'm in a scenario where I'm like, okay, I've, I can now see what this dynamic is. And I know I can't really be of help unless I'm able to speak honestly. Um, very often a real borderline uh, or narcissist, they don't, they hate therapy. They won't come. They'll only come if they feel like they can control the therapist or they can control the situation. And if not, they leave. The second they feel ganged up on, they're gone. And they're like, I don't need this crap. And they basically will go towards. So a lot of like real borderlines or narcissists exit therapy and leave their partner um, for, for like to basically be like, it's now your one-on-one -on -one therapy. So they get annoyed by it. And they're like, none of this is me. You know, this is all you need to fix your stuff and I don't need to be here. So, and, and they will literally just stop coming. And then you're left with that one addition, other part, you know, but, you know, I think that those kind of scenarios are really tough because I would talk to, I would talk to somebody about it outright when they came in, I would say, Hey, here's what I've noticed. And I would, before they even said anything, I would almost say what you just said. I understand it can be difficult. I understand it can be stressful. I understand you might actually get a lot of pressure. But I talk to couples about that before we split, where I will say, if we're going to do this, here's how it works. Here's this. Here's that. Here are the rules. Here's So they all know kind of this, if we're meeting individually, like there aren't overt secrets because 
couples therapy can't work if, um, if you believe their secrets, you know, because all of a sudden you're sitting in a room and if you feel like, okay, my, my partner met with the therapist last week and they clearly have, it just creates a really uncomfortable dynamic. So I'm pretty upfront with people in advance about how that works. And then I can, you know, I, I talk to people about the, Hey, I understand that's difficult. And here's what you can say. And here's what like, and so they know what, what they can give as an answer and what they can, I, I help people work through the, like, how do I express this so I can keep it to myself, but also satisfy that need. So it's not like, it doesn't become a building issue. Um, so I guess I'm just curious once, once you can spot maybe this, this difference in temperament and, um, emotional intelligence and kind of the empath versus the narcissist, how many of them, once you've framed the way this is going to go and the desire for openness in order for this to work, how many of them just don't come back? Because I feel as though like one thing I know about narcissistic personalities is they're very ego-driven. And so it's like, if you're going to tell this guy the truth about me, I'm not comfortable with you going in and telling them the truth about me because I present this way and people know me this way. And I can't have this one person thinking these negative things about me, even if underlying all of that, it's true. Uh, narcissist. So a narcissist, a true narcissist, or really like, uh, you know, a malignant narcissist or a toxic, very often they won't go, but they won't go because they're not threatened by it at all. They, they see the world in black and white. They believe they are the keeper of truth. Mm. So they're not really threatened by it because either they will see the therapist as either smart enough to know that they're right or too stupid to know that they're wrong, right? So whichever one. So if the therapist supports them, therapist got it. Therapist doesn't support them, therapist is an idiot. And they'll just leave. And they don't feel compunction. And they're not worried about what you're talking about because they're like, you guys go ahead and talk about whatever you want. I know I'm right. They have total conviction that they are right and everybody else is wrong and they don't care. They don't care what you have to say. So a narcissist really won't come to therapy. Like they might come if they're under the gun and they'll just sit there and it, you know, or they might be aggressive, but for the most part, they're not so worried about it. A borderline has, you know, high functioning borderline has enough fear of rejection or judgment that they're the ones that are tougher because they want to be there because they want to hear what you're saying. But they're also terrified to be there because they don't want to be judged or told they're wrong. So that's the harder presentation because they're the ones who are more likely to come in and present the very best version of themselves. But they might be foul on the way to therapy, saying the worst things possible to their partner. And then they get into therapy, sit down and they're like, hey, doc, how you doing? You know, and their partner is sitting there looking upset and, and they'll be like, you know, how can you say that? Like nothing happened. You were screaming at me in the car and they will be completely composed and say, I know we had a really tough conversation and that's why we're here, you know, but I need to be able to tell you things and that's not accurate at all. So they will come off almost put together like a right, but isn't that why we're here? Let's talk about this. And then they will talk about it in a totally different tone. But even then, very often they have no real interest in being a part of therapy because their fundamental view is unless therapy is to try and help their partner stop screwing up, they don't see the value. So it's not easy in that scenario if you're dealing with one of those to do couples therapy. Yeah, that just, that's wild. And there's something that you said that resonates with an experience that I've had, which you said that. A narcissist would believe that either the therapist is competent enough to understand that they're right or too stupid to understand that they're right, but either way they're right. And so if you were to disagree with someone who was narcissistic in their belief system or temperament, then they would just decide that you have no idea what you're talking about. And it's logical. It's very black and white. Like, how do you not see that? That's the truth, right? This, this therapist is just ridiculous. And it's interesting mm -hmm. that you said that because I've had that exact experience being like, they have no idea what they're talking about. This is very logical. It's very black and white. Like I'm not even going to listen to that feedback, um, which I find to be like wild that, because I, I couldn't wrap my mind around it, but you make it make a lot of sense. And so for 
I mean, there's so many questions that I have and we're not going to have enough time, but um, well, I, we can always, well, and what I was going to say is like with a narcissist or a border or a narcissistic borderline, you know, which is a tough combination when they leave a job or if they're forced out of a job, they leave. And if the company or business succeeds, they will believe it only succeeded because of everything I did when I was there. And if it fails, they will believe it failed because they let me go. So imagine existing with this belief of no matter what, I'm the linchpin. No matter what, it, it, like success or failure is because, is because of my presence or absence. Either way, there's no other scenario. So if they're asked to leave a job or, you know, they're kind of encouraged to leave or straight up fired, they're baffled and furious. Somebody who's more empathic, if they got fired from a job, would be devastated and would be like, I just want to know, like, I, I, I really want to know what happened. I want to know what I did wrong. I want to know, like, if it was vindictive, if it was like, you know, they're so hurt by the fact that they were kind of tricked or duped. A narcissist or borderline, no, they just feel rage. They, and, and in their mind, it has nothing to do with their behavior. And any of the behavior they did that anybody could even label as wrong wasn't their fault. It was because of the company. It was because their supervisor treated them obnoxiously or was micromanaging them or nobody would listen to their ideas or like the only reason they were angry and aggressive in meetings is because nobody would listen and just do what they were telling everybody to do because they believe they're the smartest person in that room and that their boss, their boss's boss, everybody else that they could do every single job better than that person. So there's a lot of opinions around narcissistic people being like CEOs or entrepreneurial. I'm curious on how much of that in your experience would you would you speculate is true? I'm sure you don't have like actual data and it would be quite difficult to get that because most narcissistic or borderline people aren't going to outwardly admit that they are that, nor may they even be aware. But because of that default mindset of I can succeed if I put my mind to it and I will blow everybody else out of the water. And if something doesn't happen correctly, it's likely due to not a fault of my own, but someone on my team, somebody in management, whatever that might be. Um, how do you think that that's that if indeed that is true? So if indeed more entrepreneurial types of people tend to be on that side of the spectrum, as far as temperament, do you think that is because it gives them the space to one, be status focused and two, not have to worry about ever catching the flashback of being the incompetent party in a community of people that would all agree on, from that lens. Like what, if, if that correlation was true, why would you speculate that it's due to that belief system? Well, I, I mean, I think what we would have to differentiate there is narcissistic traits aren't inherently bad. There's a difference between having narcissistic traits and having a narcissistic personality disorder. There's a difference between having a narcissistic personality disorder and being a malignant or toxic narcissist. A toxic or malignant narcissist likely isn't going to rise very well unless they are full on in charge from go. And they also have the intellect intelligence and they can surround themselves with people who say like, hey, I want to bring this to market also, and I don't care that you act like an asshole sometimes. Those narcissistic traits, which can be very healthy and very positive, right? So some of that ability to be somewhat selfish or believe in, have conviction and not feel like everything has to be like a full company-wide democracy is necessary in a business setting, right? I mean, I, well, I was going to say I could never like run like a massive company, but there's a million reasons I couldn't, you know, but separate from that, if I was looking over something and I was like, Hey, this went in a different direction that we need to, and we need to cut this whole program. It was a good try, but this one part of the company has got to go or we can't survive. And that means I have to shut down an office and fire 200 people. That would keep me up at night. Yeah. I would like, and if I had to pick between one office and another office, I would be destroyed. I would be like, how do I choose? I, you need somebody who can say, yeah, this sucks. 
but like, it's what's going to have to happen. So some of in that setting, having some of those narcissistic capabilities can be a real positive. You have to be able to kind of trust and believe in yourself and have that kind of confidence. It's when it goes way to the extreme of overconfidence or blindness, or I know people who have a lot of narcissistic traits, but also are able to say, I know I'm not the best at X and Y. So like, I'm the best at this. And so I'm going to hire the best at X and Y. And that doesn't threaten me because I don't believe anybody is better at this than I am. Then there are other people who are far more insecure and are like, I can't hire other people who are as good or better in any other area because that makes me feel less than, so they don't want to. So it, I do think in business, you need a certain amount of that kind of more healthy side of the narcissistic traits. Yeah. And I, I was listening to a psychologist recently who was talking about this and like fundamentally narcissism or narcissists is like a buzzword that's like thrown around. But in actuality, when we look at human behavior, most people have narcissistic traits, mm-hmm. right? There's a difference between embodying those traits and being able to deploy them. But I think if you can do that with the right dose of humility and introspection, so that you have awareness as to what might drive that behavior so that you can control it. Cause I think being able to control your impulses is truly what creates value. It's not that you can't go there. It's that you know when to go there. Um, and I think that yeah. that is something that uh, again, as far as the context of narcissistic traits and then narcissistic people, and that it's really just like anything else in life, I would say that the dangers and the dose and the toxicity of those personality traits together. What's up team? I interrupt this broadcast to formally invite you to our live event in McKinney, Texas, Saturday, October 21st. If you are into health, fitness, and personal development, you are not going to want to miss this. We are going to have industry leading experts talking all about nutrition, health optimization, and understanding yourself because you deserve to be all that it is that you can be. So I hope to see you there for more information. Click the link below in the description. And now we'll get back into our episode. Right. And, and the balance of it, but that's it. No one trait or approach in and of itself is, is overtly problematic. It's really just a constellation of, of traits without like That's when it becomes more of an issue. Um, but that also comes down to, you know, where we started with this, what you learn as you know, throughout your life and how that informs your interactions. Somebody who was raised with a healthy amount of, hey, it's okay sometimes to advocate for what you want. And it's okay to say that, you know, you don't want pizza, even though everybody else wants to, you know, well, that's a good thing to learn. And if you learn later in life that like, right, I need to be able to advocate for my needs. Great. For somebody who was taught, no, try and make sure to bring the greatest good. Okay, then later in life, trying to learn how to be healthy, selfish is incredibly uncomfortable because you've never flexed that muscle. So all of a sudden, trying to bring you to the table and say like, right, a lot of real kind of natural accommodators is what I'm calling them today, but like, don't take the time to even ask themselves what they want. They skip over that. When a decision point comes, they immediately start assessing what, how do I make sure I know what everybody here wants and needs? And how do I make the most happen? So if somebody says to them, great, what do you want? They don't know. They didn't take the time to even ask themselves that. Hmm. So if somebody who's more of an accommodator and somebody who's more of like healthy wise can advocate for what they want or trying to decide what to eat for dinner, you know, It'll be really quick because that more, you know, kind of like confidence with your, with the narcissism, right? Like says like, I want pizza. What do you want? That doesn't mean that they're going to push for that. But if you say that sounds great, then everybody seems happy and it goes on. If two natural accommodators try to decide what to have for dinner, it's hilarious. What do you want? No, what do you want? Well, exactly. I, so, I'm good with whatever you want. You pick. Well, I don't give so, a fuck. So you pick. <laughs> it's like, okay. So here's how that goes down. If you and I are trying to decide where we wanted to go to eat, that's exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to go, what are you in the mood for? And you're going to go, I don't know. What do you want? Now, here's the problem. I'm next going to say, 
what do I think Kate wants? Well, I know that she really, you know, likes burritos. So it's not my favorite, but I'm going to suggest we go get burritos because I think that's something you like. And now you're going to go, you know what? That's usually my favorite. And I had it yesterday. I'm not really in the mood for it, but if Josh wants it, that's cool. You and I will literally go and get burritos, even though neither one of us wanted it. None of us wanted it. <laughs> because neither one of us was trying to figure out what do we want? We were just trying to figure out what each other wants. And when we came to a decision, we're both so happy and we're both going to be sitting there going, it's not my favorite, but I'm so glad that you got what you wanted internally. That's what goes through. In the, and we'll sit there and here's the funny thing. We'll never know. We will never know. We will walk away from that, both thinking oh. we did something really nice for one another. And yeah, so some of it is, I think if you get to the like, where do you start? I often with people will start with, you have to start by saying, hey, if you are in a pattern of trying to figure out what's the quickest path to the decision, and that includes skipping over, figuring out what you want, that's the work. The first phase of that work is saying, I need to learn how to say, hold on, what do I want? That doesn't even mean I get what I want. But if you can learn how to stop and say, I need to at least answer the question. I at least need to do the work to figure out what do I really think here? What do I want? What's best for me? And then I can still do things if I think it's going to be better for the collective, but at least I go into it knowingly as opposed to trying to convince myself that's what I wanted all along. Wild. I think this is a great note to end on because I have a whole list of questions, but I do want to drop a nugget um, for those of you listening prior to starting this podcast. Uh, Josh and I had a conversation relative to another podcast where I was actually interviewed about myself and I thought it would be very cool to be interviewed or have a deep conversation with Josh about my personal background and my story and almost give you guys an example of what a therapeutic conversation would look like. And I will kind of, val uh, what is the word that I'm looking for? Um, I will vo volunteer as tribute. That is what I was going for, uh, yes. um, to be able to give the example, um, for you guys. So if you guys are interested in that, let me know, but I will absolutely be doing that even if you aren't interested, um, because I think it would be very valuable in practice, but Josh, thank you so much for being here today. Also plugging that Josh will be at the seminar in October speaking. So you guys do not want to miss out if you've liked these conversations, you're going to get much more of that in person. So thank you so much, well, Josh. Thank you so much again for having me on. I'm looking forward to October and I'll look forward to the next, uh, the next podcast. Yeah. I'll connect with you so we can schedule that for sure. All right. All right I'll, I'll talk, talk to you, to you soon. soon. Bye. Bye.